Hello, and welcome back to another episode of Open Floor. I'm Andrew Sharp, and on the other line, Ben Golver. What's up, man? Not too much, Andrew. Actually, I lied. Everything is up. It's all <laughs> happening. It all happened. You know, I guess I'm a little bit worried that we're not going to be able to keep up this frenetic pace uh, for the next two weeks during the NBA Finals. But the last week plus of the Western Conference Finals was just mentally exhausting. Like, I know on the last podcast I mentioned, like, think about how hard it would be if you had to, you know, get switched into one-on-one defensive coverage against Chris Paul or James Harden like 40 times a game. I mean, it would just drain you. Yeah. And by the end of this series, I am drained. I don't know how you're (laughs) feeling, but I think we could safely assume the the Rockets are drained. Poor Mike D'Antoni is definitely drained. The Warriors, like, you know, maybe they got like 1% battery life left on their collective phone. Um, but we are headed for Cavaliers, Warriors, four uh, by the skin of our teeth. Yeah, we've got a lot to get through. Uh, we got to talk Cavs and LeBron. And it, it has just been like a wild week. The weekend was as crazy as expected. And if the playoffs peaked here, that's okay because I think both conference finals exceeded expectations for most everybody and we got some legendary performances at least on the east side and then the west side you know it did kind of end with a thud for houston but they were so good and they played so hard that i can't even like clown them at at all here and uh and i thought that that series like tonight was very much an ugly Game 7. You know, people are always like, well, Game 7s are, are some of the ugliest basketball you'll ever see. This was that, but it was still, like, high intensity for almost the entire game. And it was it was a lot of fun to watch. Yeah, I, I'm going to start, you know, picking apart what you said right off the top. So why is what happened in the Eastern Conference considered legendary, but what we just witnessed in the Western Conference isn't considered legendary. There's no question which of those two series was played at a higher level. There's no question which of those two series had more talent. There's no question which of those series pushed each other harder, requiring more counter-adjustments and adjustments and triple adjustments and everything else. Why are you saying a legendary performance You know what? Uh, and you're applying it to the Eastern Conference? Come All on, right. explain yourself. <laughs> For the record, this is another podcast. This is the last time we're recording at like 1.30 in the morning, but... So don't hold me to anything here. That was not the proper way to frame it. But what I was saying is that there are going to be people talking about what LeBron did to Boston 20 years from now, whereas I think a lot of the Warriors-Rocket series is kind of kind of fade into the ether a little bit and just be folded into the broader three or four or five year run, however long the sense of lasting for Golden State. And it's not something that we're going to like look back on and romanticize i think it's going to be viewed as the ultimate near miss for golden state i mean they really cheated death here i think the chris paul injury is probably going to hang over this series as uh the years pass i mean that's sort of what's going to define the series it was just a crazy thing back and forth houston ran out of gas in game six and seven because they didn't have chris paul Uh i think that's sort of how this is going to be framed and i guess my point to you here is you know we should give Golden State an awful lot of credit for their comebacks in game six and game seven. Now, look, I know it wasn't this like glorious (laughs) over the top, like everyone's like, you know, Disney 
story lane of like the the underdog, you know, coming through, this finally pushed to the brink. This is really going to put your powers of spin to the test here, okay? So uh, talk me through down. why we should be excited about the Warriors right now. Because teams get down 10, 15, 17 points in the playoffs and they break all the time. And yep. Steph Curry was actually the person who pointed to sort of the turning point moment for Golden State in Game 7. Draymond has a laughable turnover, gives it to Harden for a breakaway dunk. Uh, the finger pointing could potentially start at that moment. You know, they they call a timeout, and you know, Steph essentially said they had kind of a mature response to it. You know, everybody uh, decided to sort of forgive in that moment and you know come together rather than go in their separate directions. And there was absolutely times during this series where it seemed like Golden State was about to splinter. Whether it was the sure. arguments over Kevin Durant too much ISO, whether it was the cold stretches for Steph Curry, whether it was Klay Thompson's sort of no-show performance before his big breakthrough in Game 6, uh, whether it was Draymond and, and uh, Kevin Durant arguing about defensive coverage in Game 7. You can go back to Game 6, and KD and Steph are pointing the fingers at each other over blown switches defensively. There was definite red flags in this series for Golden State, and we shouldn't just say, oh, they're the more talented team. They were supposed to win. It was inevitable. To me, that's nonsense. They very, very easily could have lost Game 7. They very easily uh, could have lost this series, and they cheated death. I guess that's yeah. my takeaway. I don't know if that makes it a legendary performance, uh, but I do think it required an awful lot of gumption to get them through this. Yeah, I, I agree with you, and we'll come back to that, but... Briefly, we should touch on the other side of the spectrum, which I think is how a lot of people sort of process what just happened. Uh, Brett says, and we got a lot of emails like right after the game, so thank you to everybody who wrote in. It happened after the Celtics win as well, or the Celtics loss as well. Uh, so thank you. We'll start here with Brett, who says, The Warriors beat the Rockets in the most recent salient example that the world is a dark, terrible, and doomed place. I am going to watch the 2015 Finals Warriors highlights and try to pretend like the NBA is okay right now. Also, Chris Paul being injured for Game 7 is the sickest existential joke ever told. There is no God. I think that's most people's takeaway from the end of this series. Slow down. It's only the second sickest existential joke. The okay. sickest existential joke is Mike D'Antoni getting the closest he's ever come in his career to making the finals and having it go away because his team missed 27 consecutive <laughs> three-pointers. Really brutal. That That's... could be the sickest existential joke in NBA history. I mean, this guy has taken flack for a decade or longer for his over-reliance on three-pointers and by and large... He has been uh, proven correct, right? Everyone yeah. else has decided, generally speaking, that he was on to something by you know, favoring the threes. He had to watch both San Antonio and Golden State sort of pilfer his approach and exactly. win titles with it. <laughs> he was about to finally break through and win a title with it after taking grief over his philosophy early in this series based on how much they were isolating to get those threes and everything else. And the rug was pulled out from underneath him like... I mean, that's got to be his worst nightmare, right? Even in his worst nightmare, he doesn't conjure up his team missing 27 consecutive three-pointers. Yeah, I mean, I felt terrible for him. I felt terrible for everyone in Houston, which is 
a really bizarre place for me to be. I mean, like a week ago, I was nonstop slander whenever the Rockets were brought into the conversation. But like, I don't know. I mean, I think D'Antoni did a really nice job in this series. And a lot of people were, were pretty skeptical of how he would handle the, himself and the team coming into this. And I, I like my takeaways, you talk about your takeaway with the, the toughness of the Warriors. And I think that's valid. But for me, again, I'm still just blown away by how hard the Rockets played. Like those guys were just awesome. Whether it's Eric Gordon... P.J. Tucker, Trevor Ariza's defense, Clint Capella was great for most of Game 7, Gerald Green, like, I mean, they just had no business making it that close against a team like this Warriors roster, and they all just fought their ass off the entire time they were on the court, and I was just really impressed, and it was a lot of fun try- watching them try to make everything work here. And they almost did. <laughs> but- yeah, I mean, D'Antoni said after the game, you know, I'm devastated, but I'm proud, and I don't know what I am. That was sort of his, you know, uh, his back-to-back-to-back thoughts. And that pretty much summarized the whole thing. I mean, they're going to look back when they watch this tape, and they're going to shake their head and say, how did we miss all those three-pointers? But do you think they're actually going to look back on this series even though they had so many potential chances to go up big on Golden State, and they just could not kind of deliver those knockout blows at various points of the series, especially with their three-point shooting. But I don't think that they're going to look back on this series necessarily with any regrets, other than, you know, Chris Paul's injury. Right. I think if you're Houston, like you're mentioning, they pretty much maxed out what they possibly could do with the people that they had and the number of guys they could play. And one way to emphasize that is to, like, look what happened when Ryan Anderson went on the court, right? Like, the whole series, people are saying, like, oh, they're only played six or seven guys. Why don't they consider going a little bit deeper? Well, you put Ryan Anderson on the court, and Steph Curry starts feasting like it's an all-you-can-eat buffet. You know, I mean, he is just eating every single possession over and over and over again. And uh, that pretty much summed it up. So I think for Houston— there is no shame in defeat. I mean, yeah. you're not going to nitpick the the three point field goal percentage. You're not going to nitpick some of their you know ugly blowout losses. Uh, you know, at Oracle Arena, they went as far as they possibly could have gone. Yeah, I I was just I was way more impressed by the Rockets in this series than I was the Warriors, and uh, you said it all there. But I think that's the other side of the coin for me, and it just seems like there's something up with the Warriors. I mean. D- doesn't doesn't it seem like there's I don't know whether it's chemistry or fit on the court but did you see any of that I mean for me between the first quarter of game six and then the entire first half in game seven they just looked so out of it like KD was in his own head Steph couldn't get in a rhythm Draymond has struggled for the past week and Honest to God, coming out of this series, my predominant thought is that some shit is going down in Golden State relatively soon. And I don't know what it's going to be, but like something is off with that team. Because the Rockets, again, give them credit, but it was like P.J. Tucker and Eric Gordon and Trevor Ariza going toe-to-toe with the most talented team in NBA history. And like that's, I don't know, it doesn't seem like something that should be possible. Yeah, I mean, Golden State is not playing to their their complete ceiling here and, and not even close. And I think that's sort of producing what these, uh, you know, feelings that you're describing. You know, I think a lot of uh, the weirdness, I think, in this series centers around Durant. Mm-hmm. And obviously, I've defended him, you know, to the death and back. 
uh, he mentioned after Game 7 how much Houston switching got into his head because, uh, you know, it, Golden State's first response to that was to ISO him. And he even mentioned how he knew the ISO conversation was sort of happening around him. And he also talked about how Houston's defense on him caused him to overthink, to make, you know, plays in traffic that he's not usually making to, uh, you know, maybe force some shots in certain situations to try to make some passes that, you know, he's not capable of making through multiple defenders. And really the story of the last couple of games was Golden State finally finding ways to sort of unlock that. And some of it was involved, you know, two-man game for Kevin Durant, where at the top of the key, he could make simple passes to a Clay Thompson, not have to risk those uh, turnovers, and they could still make, you know, some pretty, you know, high-efficiency looks, uh, you know, around the perimeter. And obviously, Clay came through in a big-time way in Game 6. But then also in Game 7, it was, you know, Stephen Curry biding his time, mm-hmm. you know, getting through that early first-half slump or just sort of quiet uh, performance and then really busting out and not relying so much on Kevin Durant as the bailout guy. Now, don't get me wrong, Katie still had a bunch of clutch shots, you know, late in the fourth quarter. I mean, it was sort of him and Steph going back and forth, kind of pummeling Houston's defense. But I think a lot of the weirdness centered around Kevin asking the question, how much do they need me to do? And then how much is too much, right? And I think both of those questions were just coming at him quicker than he could really uh, respond in the moment. And uh, as he pointed out in his post-game press conference, he's like, I'm glad I sort of worked through all of that in a win rather than a loss. And I think he was sort of hinting at this idea that had he not been able to work through it, had the Warriors offense just stayed bottled up because of some of the isolation stuff that was, you know, getting to them, uh, he would have been in line for some significant blame. Yeah, I mean, it, it was just like watching them fumble through sets on offense and then even more than Katie and Steph not really being in a rhythm, which they weren't for most of that first half, like what was strange to me is watching them get beat to every loose ball. I mean, they were giving up all kinds of offensive rebounds to guys like PJ Tucker and Ariza, and even Eric Gordon was mixing it up in there. And it was just like, I don't know. I mean, it's game seven of the Western Conference Finals, and they looked like they just didn't give a shit. And credit to them for locking in in the second half. I, I should add that I think like that's a lot easier to do when you have twice as much talent on the court, and it's it's a lot easier to be mentally tough when you have an advantage in like three different places on any given possession. But it just their their effort was so poor those first two quarters, and uh, I just don't know how that happens. And maybe that's just the way this team is wired this year. But it was crazy to watch it happen in that setting. Like that was like the Rockets were good enough so that Golden State should have had like some appropriate fear going into that game, and they just were kind of all over the place. And maybe it was, maybe they were a little bit shook and playing a little bit tight. But I don't know. Well, I think part of it is that they definitely do the rope a dope thing. I mean, all season long, the third quarters they've just been outrageously good in third quarters, and that's not an accident, right? So that tells you that. Night in, night out, they're biding their time, taking other teams' punches, and then realizing they can flip the switch uh, in the second half. And mm-hmm. Clay Thompson alluded to it. You know, look, they're they're not afraid when they're down 11 because they know it only takes them two minutes to erase that kind of a lead, right? There has not been very many teams in NBA history who can feel that level of comfort being down 11. You know, yeah. that's a dis- that's a Warriors distortion feeling that we've become accustomed to and they've become accustomed to because they've done it so many times. But 
you know, that's the kind of situation, like I said earlier, where, you know, often teams would break. Um, so I think part of it is that they're this rope-a-dope team. I think part of this, uh, it, too, though, Andrew, in terms of the effort level that you're describing, I think it's kind of enabled behavior, right? I mean, all season long, they have, you know, made a huge deal about how it's the fourth trip to the finals. They have not really played that hard. They've made basically, you know, the coaching staff has sort of excused uh, all different types of, you know, behavior and bad habits during the regular season, whether it's turnovers or not going for loose balls, the things that you're mentioning, because, you know, they're carrying this burden of the past seasons, right? Yeah. And, you know, bad habits, uh, you know, if you continue to practice those, they're going to come up in pressure-packed moments. And you saw it in close games where, you know, they hadn't really taken a ton of close games seriously this year because they hadn't been in that many close games. Uh, that bit, bit them a couple times uh, in Houston's victories. Uh, but then also, uh, I think some of the, uh, you know, lack of urgency or complacency, if you want to call it, that, you know, continuously showed up, you know, throughout this series, uh, again, it was just a- enabled behavior. You know, it was basically allowed to happen all season long because, you know, they decided that they weren't going to really try, uh, you know, really, truly try until the playoffs. And, like I said, they cheated death here. I mean, I think <laughs> they really did. If, I mean, are you with me? If Paul's healthy, and I'm I'm not saying this in an asterisk way to like you know downgrade Golden State's accomplishment in any way. I mean, I really think it was an impressive way that they gutted this series victory out. Yeah. I mean, they're only the second team in the three point era to win a Western Conference Finals game seven on the road. I mean, that alone is impressive, um, especially against a team like Houston that was so good at home. You know, basically all year long. But if Chris Paul is healthy, I, you know, a big part of my, you know, brain and my heart says Houston wins this series. Really? Wow. I don't know if I'm willing to go that far, but it says a lot that you are. I mean, I don't know. I think Chris Paul was incredible in games four and five, but I just still get the feeling the Warriors would have come back and won game six and seven had he been there. I mean, the deal with this Golden State team, which we've been talking about the last 10 minutes, is they do just enough to win. And it's frustrating to watch. It's not particularly entertaining. And it's probably not great for the league because like, I I wasn't having fun knowing that they were down 10 or 15 in that first half, knowing that they were going to come back and win. Like, that's pretty frustrating, but... I'm I'm not going to go as far as you are, or you're not even quite going there, but you're inching in, in that direction. I don't think that Chris Paul would have changed this series and, and had the Rockets winning. Like, I think if there's an asterisk attached to any of this, it's that nobody really cared about the Warriors during most of this run, and the rest of the league has been driving the growth during this era, and nights like tonight would have been so much more exciting had Houston found a way to pull it off. Like the the only way the CP3 injury changed it for me is that the past two games we were basically watching last year's Rockets and they lost a lot of the diversity that CP brought to the offense and eventually we just had to watch it all collapse on itself and the threes, I mean that was painful to watch. Well, I mean, yeah, there's just no way they're missing 27 straight threes if Chris exactly, is out there. Exactly. You, you can't convince me of that. I just think that he was so big uh, late in their two, you know, close wins. And, you know, outside of the huge blowout, you know, victory in game three, 
Uh, I just felt like Houston had such a uh, a better steadiness with Chris Paul on the court, and they were also so shorthanded in terms of you know bodies who were capable of playing that. Uh, like I said, those Ryan Anderson minutes really you know killed Houston, uh, and I I just think that they would have been able to smooth over uh, Harden's cold stretches a little bit better yeah. had Paul been out there. Because I mean that is one thing that's going to get lost with this Warriors series victory is like there was times when KD. Uh, was pretty rough in terms of his offense. And there was times where Steph was really, really rough with his offense too. Yeah. And the the combination, you know, the way that Steve Kerr put it is sort of like, you know, Steph Curry kind of incites things, you know, like he uh, really helps them like take off on their big runs, whereas Katie's just the methodical, like reliable factor. And that combination of those two guys, whether or not they're always on the same page, uh, that's what kind of kept... Uh, Golden State afloat throughout this series and once you take Chris Paul off and he can no longer do that and have that sort of uh, reliability factor to support Harden that's when Houston kind of crumbled in the the second half of of both game six and game seven yeah I mean I completely agree with you and I also think that like a lot of it just comes down to exhausted legs and removing CP3 from the equation had Houston and D'Antoni relying on like five and a half guys and I think anyone trying to claim that the 25 or 27 straight missed threes were random is just lying like when you this is what happens when you play six guys for seven games and it happened to Boston in game seven too to some degree and And there's so many of them were open hi Andrew yeah just yeah, well, like they're getting great looks, and and that was, that was the surprising part to me. It's like it's one thing to miss twenty seven threes if like every single one comes with a hand in the face, but Golden State was tired too in the second half. I mean, they were they were playing good defense, but not elite, like you know, perfect picture perfect. Like we've rested for four nights type defense, right? And they just couldn't cash in. Let's finish up with a couple more questions about Houston here before we move on to the other side of the bracket. James asks, is there any more stinging indictment of Harden's terrible nosebleed celebration than Marv Albert thinking he quote-unquote lost a contact lens? Oof. And Ben, you missed this, but it was so great. It was, Marv Albert was like, and Harden, uh, it looks like he's lost the contact lens. I think it came after a Harden dunk, but it was a great send-off for the worst celebration in NBA history. No, it was after a dunk, and he had shelved that bloody nose celebration for dunks. <laughs> I know, and he brought it back. The entire Western Conference Finals until that <laughs> point, and then Game 7 basically falls apart immediately after that. I mean, I think that's one that you do not ever bring it's back true. again, James Harden. <laughs> and I actually had the experience. I was sitting next to a, a sports writer who hadn't heard about this celebration at all, and I was explaining it to him, and he made me explain it four separate times, basically to make sure that my story didn't deviate. <laughs> it was sort of like... It was like going into a, uh, you know, like a, a police uh, interview or interrogation where they just ask you the same questions over and over to make sure I wasn't screwing with him. Yeah. Because he, it was so dumb. He thought I was like pulling his leg. And I was like, no, I'm serious. Like <laughs> he pretends to have a bloody nose because he jumps so high on the dunk. And he's like, no, that's not possible. I'm like, yeah, I'm telling you, this <laughs> is what he does. <laughs> <laughs> yes. Well, for better and worse, that's kind of where it all peaked for the Rockets. Um we should have a more serious, hardened discussion for a minute here. Thaddeus, who wrote in about a month ago with his theory that James Harden 
wears down as series unfold. He emails in again and says, Game 7, Houston comes roaring out of the gate, then Harden bricks his way into big numbers, but needs a Westbrook-like 29 shots to get his 32 points, going 2 of 13 from 3, and making it look like Eric Gordon was his equal for long stretches of the game. At what point is it fair to say, even though this is against Golden State, you need to do more when you're the probable MVP? What do you think of of Harden in this series? Uh, I didn't think he blew away expectations, but I think given where the bar had been sort of set for him from his past playoff failures, I think he exceeded expectations. I think the criticism for him, um, it's going too far. You know, he didn't have an A plus series, but um, I think when you look at you know, last year, yeah. <laughs> or really any of the three or four previous times he's played Golden State at the playoffs, he played by far more efficiently. You know, better decisions, smarter, uh, and they took a team that had no business going to a game seven to a game seven. So I think you you give him a lot of credit. Um, I'm not really here for the the nitpicking on you know his shooting percentages or anything like that. If you want to do that, you know, be my guest. Uh, but I do think that the causes of why he tends to wane uh, over the co- course of these playoff series, uh, as Thaddeus has pointed out previously, were all there. You know, like yeah. nothing really changed. You know, and as soon as Chris Paul goes down, it's like, oh God, what's he supposed to do? And look, it, let's just imagine a world where LeBron didn't exist. This idea of like he has to play like the MVP and like you know so that means he has to put up a forty point triple double and you know do it on like fifteen shots like that standard wouldn't be there you know I think Harden would be considered you know easily passing the MVP standard if we didn't live in a world that had LeBron. Yeah, I I think I'm actually with you. Um, amazingly enough, I mean, Harden, you know. He and it's not really a compliment to him because, like you said, the bar was so low coming into these playoffs, and he did exceed it. Like, here's the thing: he the problem with Harden over the last couple years, or or in in his worst moments, it didn't look like he was fighting. And what I liked about watching him in Game Six and Game Seven is he was clearly like battling these guys to the very end and he wasn't super efficient but like he was on the court with guys like Trevor Ariza and and guys like Clint Capella like he wasn't surrounded by all-stars really and Capella was actually solid tonight but you know he he just like he was doing everything and I think if what that I, I think the point about him wearing down over the course of a series is a really good one, um, and it's something to watch going forward. And it, it would concern me if I were Houston. Not that they can really do anything about it at this point, but like it's a thing. And but Andrew, remember they knew that. That's why they went and got Chris. You yeah, know? that was the whole idea. And so. You know, they, they fall for the same reason because they didn't have Chris in game six and seven. I mean, that's a huge part well, of, of why okay. his numbers look the way true, they did. That's true, but he was also wearing down and was less effective in games four and five as well. So, like, we can't let him off the hook entirely. To me, I think it's unfortunate because Harden does have long stretches of the regular season where he looks like a top three player. And if there's anything you want to, like, conclude coming out of a series like this, it's unfair to judge him against the Golden State curve, but I do think that like he he's not in the 
Durant, Steph, uh, LeBron, like that category of superstars. And I, and I think if he's going to win an MVP, which is, I mean, he's pretty much guaranteed to, to do that in, a, in another couple weeks here, like that's ca- got to be kind of disappointing if you're Houston. Like he's just not quite at that level. Yeah, I I don't know if it's disappointing, man. That's a really, really high level. And like we're saying the LeBron curve, the Golden State Warriors curve, like this is as high as it gets, right? These guys aren't going right. to be up there forever, even though it seems like it. So I think if you're Houston, you're thinking like your title window here is open for the That's next true. two to three years if this is your main guy. Uh, the other thing I'd say in his defense, you know, he played the best defense for a, a two-week stretch probably of his career I mean given how high level this series was played at now he had some really bad moments in this series defensively uh but he he wasn't that major liability also in his defense and and you pretty much hinted at this he didn't check out when the going got got tough uh and you know Mike D'Antoni was able to say after the game like I'm basically proud of my team right yeah and And he's a big part of you couldn't say you couldn't say that 12 months ago about the way that they they fell out, right? <laughs> nope. At least I don't think you could say <laughs> we that We were honestly. not saying that 12 months ago after the Spurs series. You're absolutely right. Yeah, and I also think, uh, so we put the referendum to Harden in terms of like, you know, show up, don't cave. And he absolutely passed that referendum. And that's why I think he, um, you know, he surpassed expectations in this series. I think you're right. You know, he's not that top three level player, but he's an awful strong candidate for number four uh, in terms of- yep. Uh, I mean, like, I love Anthony Davis and Giannis as much as anybody, right? Whoever else is in this conversation, Kawhi, you know, he's probably not there right now just because of the injury. But, you know, no team built around those guys, Davis or Giannis, is going to give Golden State as many problems as the Rockets who are built around Harden just gave them. Yeah, uh, I think that's very fair. I w- it, it was funny when I was list- listing those three guys— Durant, LeBron, and Curry. I started to list Kawhi, and then in the back of my mind, I was like, we have no idea <laughs> what Kawhi's deal is at this point. So he's not in that category either at this point. But, uh, well, hey, Andrew, I got a, I got a question for you, though, because we're agreeing too much on this podcast. You know, this, this open floor nation and globe, they demand more from us than just agreeing. So I want to highlight one statement made by Kevin Durant in his post-game interview. Now, keep in mind, this is after Game 7, victorious. Everyone's calling this the real finals. This is moment of triumph. Everybody's hugging him and, uh, you know, backslapping on the court after the game. He has about 30 minutes to think of it. He comes into the podium room, and he's asked about, you know, kind of the Rockets chasing the Warriors, and are they getting over the hump, and are they closing the gap, and so forth, because of all the obsessed talk that Daryl Morey put out there and everything else. And Kevin Durant's answer includes the sentence, you know, anything could happen over the summer for both sides. Yeah. What did you make of that? That seems like a pretty weird thing to say, doesn't it? I mean, I guess if you're just trying to duck the question, you say, uh, you know, I guess we'll have to see next year or something. But anything could happen over the summer for both sides. What is he anticipating happening, Andrew? I don't know, man. All I know is... My third eye is very, very open when it comes to Kevin Durant's free agency. I've been quietly gaming out various scenarios where he could potentially leave Golden State for about six weeks now. Um, It certainly has intensified over the last two weeks, and I have quietly come to the conclusion that they have to win the title because if he loses with the Warriors— 
Like, you can't leave. I mean, and I would almost feel bad for him to leave in that scenario because it would just be such a horrible decision for his reputation. But look, the chemistry doesn't look great right now. You know, you've got Draymond's mom on Twitter every other game, faving tweets, hating on Durant. Like, there's something going on in that locker room. So for him to say that, like, I I mean, look, none of these guys say any of that stuff by accident. So... We'll see. I would say that the percentages are still in Golden State's favor going into the summer. But again, you know, L.A. has a lot of cap space. Uh, you know, I like it would be Durant and Philly seems like a bridge too far for me. But everything is on the table as far as I'm concerned. So, you know that I've basically... The last person left defending Kevin Durant in the universe, right? Correct. Um, Official I do wanna, spokesperson and, and I, for, for KD. And I actually think, and this might be the form of self-parody, I don't know, but I actually think if you had to give like a Western Conference Finals MVP for this series, I think I would still give it to Durant for his consistency. <laughs> uh, All those sure turnaround you, jumpers over Eric Gordon just blew you away, huh? You know, I'm sure you try to make an argument for Steph based on, you know, his burst ability in the second half of a couple of games. Based on him but, carrying them in the second half tonight. Sure. Go ahead. No, uh, Well, Katie had a pretty good night too. But here's why I'm setting that up as like the number one Kevin Durant backer. If you saw the video, the in-game video where Steve Kerr is giving his uh, little Michael Jordan anecdote to Kevin Durant, you know, trust your teammates, you know, pass the ball so on and so forth. And everyone on Twitter, or most people on Twitter are sort of hyping this up as this beautiful moment where like Kerr's reaching deep into his bag to inspire uh, an MVP to even greater heights, right? Yep. Watch Kevin Durant's reaction to it. He is not trying to hear it, Andrew. There is no response from him. He doesn't say anything. He looks like he's tuning Kerr out. He looks like he doesn't <laughs> want to hear that message. And... Uh, you know, when we're looking at sort of the sources of friction within this series, Kevin Durant's role is like right in the middle of it. And it yep. didn't, you know, turn this series upside down, but it could have. And I think he knows that given his comments a- after game seven in terms of how he was overthinking. I think Steph and Clay sort of know that because, you know, in some of their burst moments in the second half of game six, uh, you know, it was sort of not really being influenced by Kevin Durant. It was kind of getting back to Warriors basketball. I think it's blatantly obvious in terms of who's rooting for who when it comes to the Warriors fan base. Everybody is Team Steph. Yeah, uh, you know, and I, I've seeded that point to you previously. Is like, you know, they should appreciate Kevin a lot more than they do, but <laughs> it's it's probably never going to happen. And you know, what what are you supposed to do, right? Yeah, um, you sound like you work for Rich Kleiman right now. Look, get out of here. I... No, all I'm saying is, <laughs> if everyone can see it, if we have these little snippets of these conversations where. You know, there's a little tension between him and Kerr. Like, does he truly believe in Kerr's way, right? Uh It's going to bring him probably two titles and maybe even two finals MVPs. But, like, is he really willing to commit to it for another, you know, long-term max contract given this sort of dynamic? That is a huge question. And I would hope the answer to that question, by the way, is yes, because I think the Warriors have pulled the best out of Kevin that we've ever seen. I think that when they're playing their best basketball and everybody's on the same page, He's been awful happy and pretty content on the court. But I don't know the answer to that question, Andrew. There's just, like you said, too much weirdness in this series. And uh, the debate over 
you know, some of the defensive assignments where Kevin's often in the middle of the, the finger pointing going on there, whether it's Draymond, uh, you know, whether it's Steph, it is weird. And that comment really jumped out to me. Anything could happen for both sides. Well, what do you mean, Kevin? You can just re-sign <laughs> a max contract. Everybody else can just come back. What do you mean anything could happen for both sides? Dude, like, you should have gotten in there, jumped into the fray on NBA TV and really mixed it up with KD, you know? Uh, look, I have a couple responses there. First of all, I don't think it, what what you're describing, I don't think that there's some kind of disconnect between Durant and Kerr. I think there's a disconnect between Durant and everyone right now. I think he's just kind (laughs) of in his own head. And again, I don't want to go too InfoWars sports on this podcast right now, but look, like just watching KD, he hasn't looked happy in like three months, like the, the the clip that you're describing has borne itself out a hundred different times in a hundred different situations with him where you just look at him and you're like, man, is he enjoying any of this? And so it's tough. I, I like it's, but as far as the free agency, it's just something to monitor. It's something that everybody like a month ago, if you had come out and said Durant was about to leave Golden State, everyone would have called you like a hot take asshole. But I think that it's a conversation that should be had, at least quietly. We don't have to put it in the forefront. We won't put it in the title of this podcast, but like, it's a thing. The other question I had for you as far as the Warriors future is concerned, do you think this is Steve Kerr's last year coaching Golden State? Well, that is a good question. So one final point on Durant real quick that I, I neglected to mention. Okay. When he was taken out of the game by Kerr, uh, I believe it was in the first quarter, if not the first quarter, then very early in the second quarter, he didn't want to come out, Andrew. And he stood up after he came out, essentially not to the point of like trying to check himself back in, but like making it very clear, like, hey, don't forget about me. You know, I'm over here on the bench. And Remember, this is 24 hours after LeBron gets every headline for going all 48 (laughs) in game seven, right? And in Kevin's mind, don't you think he's probably thinking like, hey, I shared an Uber with LeBron. Like we're on that same level, you know? Why am I not going all uh, all 48? And again, it's just one of those philosophical things where like Golden State doesn't treat Steph like the Cleveland treats LeBron. They don't treat KD like Cleveland treats LeBron. It's just a different dynamic and... It just felt like there was a little tension uh, over that too. And again, it worked out so good, but something to monitor there. In terms of Steve Kerr, he indulged in some serious gallows humor in his Game 7 press conference. He said, uh, you know, basically after the poor first half that he thought about resigning. And like he was joking, but was he joking? You know, it's like one of those situations where like you pour all of it, you have this team that's just kind of hanging on the ledge of being the biggest underachievers of the 21st century in the NBA. I mean, if you go through the other teams that have kind of fallen short of expectations, whether it was the 2011 Heat, it was their first year together, uh, you know, whether it was the 04 Lakers uh, where they make the finals, but they're, they're shocked in the finals. Uh, if you look at like the 2007 Mavericks where, uh, you know, they blow a 67 win season in the first round. If you look at, Uh, even the Warriors in 2016, none of those teams that I mentioned had four all-stars, two MVPs, all in their primes, all having played together and won a title together 
at risk of going out in the conference finals. You know, there's nothing else comparable in recent history to that. And had Kerr not got them over that hump, <laughs> I think he would have been in line for some serious, serious heat. We know their ownership group is very demanding there. Yep. And that's just one of those situations where, like, you just didn't get it done. You know, however you plan to manage this thing, however you got these guys through this, bottom line was, uh, you know, you didn't get the job done. And I don't know, maybe it would have been his decision, you know, as he was sort of joking. It certainly you know, would have been framed as his decision, regardless of yeah. what really went on. Yeah, for sure. You, you don't fire him in the post-game press conference if you're Lake up out of rage, right? Yeah, <laughs> no. you, you do it the right way. But something big would have had to give if they lost this series. That's my point. Yeah, well, and I mean, I think, first of all, in the scenario you're describing, the rationale for moving on from Kerr would be that he's just not connecting with his team anymore which I think is a little bit true. I mean, and again, you were at the game, so you didn't see his interview after the first quarter. But, you know, a lot of times coaches have to go do that first quarter interview and they're kind of curt and aloof or whatever. And then there's Popovich. But Kerr, it was maybe the most pissed off first quarter interview I've ever seen from a coach. I mean, he literally was just like, that was the worst quarter of basketball we've ever played we're down by five so we're we're fine and then just walked away and was just very pissed off and you look at the way this Warriors team has played this year all year and you just have to assume that behind the scenes Kerr is going insane trying to connect with these guys and get them to just lock in and actually play like a team or play like a team who gives a shit and so I as far as his future is concerned, I that was the one thing that was in the back of my mind in the second half. Is like I really like Kerr and I also really like D'Antoni, and it was a bummer to watch the Rockets kind of fold there in the second half and run out of gas. And because I, I would have been really happy for Mike D'Antoni specifically. He's a guy who like doesn't take himself too seriously and is just seems like one of the best dudes in the NBA. And Kerr is in that same boat. And so that's that's the one silver lining of this Warriors win is I do think he's going to leave after this season and I would prefer to have him leave on a high note and go out winning three titles in four years and just go on and live a really happy life and be like a brilliant voice in the basketball community who doesn't have to deal with this like crazy ass Warriors situation uh, going forward. But I don't know. It was just it was the one other thread from this game that stuck out to me. Yeah, well, on this, I mean, that's a pretty hot take. I appreciate that. Good job. Don't pull punches. <laughs> I love it. Uh, well, one thing though, with these Warriors, it's possible they take all the wrong lessons from this victory too, right? I mean, Maybe. assuming if, if we we put them through and they're going to beat Cleveland because Cleveland, you know, is is in a rough spot. Um, Let's say they do beat Cleveland. I mean, are they going to, you know, ruminate over the summer and say, guys, look, we really got a little full of ourselves there. We relied we, we relied too much on flipping the switch in the, in the third quarters. Uh, you know, we knew we could beat them and, and we're fine. Uh, you know, that, that was a mentality that we have to nip in the bud. We have to come back laser sharp focused and try to thump teams, you know, uh, game after game next season. For some reason... I don't think they're going to take the right lessons from this, you know, and I think that's when you get into that dangerous situation like those 04 Lakers or whoever else where, 
um, you know, you start to, you know, believe your own BS too much. And, you know, eventually that comes back to, to, uh, to bite you. But that is sort of the tricky thing. If you're Steve Kerr, like your whole coaching career, you've wanted to be this sort of like philosophical example, right. Of like playing the right way, doing the right things, strength in numbers, like sharing the ball, passing the ball. And like this team doesn't really embody all of those characteristics necessarily. I mean, yeah, they do for stretches. Like there, there yeah. are times when you can see it all working and like Kerr's vision comes to fruition and Steph is playing unselfish basketball and they are just not only unstoppable, but like it's gorgeous to watch. But more often than not, they are like driving him insane. <laughs> and so I think at some point that has to matter. Yeah, they're driving him insane. And also, I think, like, sort of not living up to his ideals, too, yeah, right? Yeah, exactly. Uh, and I think that's sort of that's sort of an issue. Now, so, like, let's say he doesn't, uh, you know, step away from this team. The problem is he's kind of boxed himself into a quarter because he's the nice guy. You know, he's the friendly guy. He's the guy who lets you play music at practice and gets into crazy three-point shooting contests and gives you extra days off. Like, he's played every player-friendly card that he has to play uh-huh so like what does he do like try to flip the script and turn into like darker you know and like all of a sudden <laughs> exactly. we're like we're running four hour practices and like guys are sprinting up and down constantly and like we're gonna like you know beat some uh respect for the game into you like steve kerr can't really play that card uh so uh who knows maybe this will be a blip in the radar if they can get back up to six gear during the finals smoke lebron off the court and, you know, maybe we'll look back and say, hey, it was just a really hard-fought, tense series. They they bent, but they didn't break. They were able to kind of keep things together in the tight moments, and they go forward. You know, that is a possibility. Uh, but, you know, there are other possibilities, too. And I guess yeah. that is one reason why I don't like the inevitability talk here. Because, you know, coming into this playoffs, oh, they're going to win guaranteed. And I told you, I thought, you know, it was something like a little bit less than a 50% chance they would win the title uh, just because of the Steph Curry injury. And I think we saw that it was pretty close there. I mean, it, you know, maybe it wasn't 50 uh, 50 in terms of their control over this entire postseason, but it was a lot closer than last year's postseason where it was like a 98% level of control, you know? Yeah. Well, like, we've gone way over on <laughs> Warriors, Rockets, and existential Warriors questions, but I would just say stay woke, everyone. Kevin Durant is leaving this summer. And I think. Talking this out with you has made me realize that like the answer is clear. Dwayne Casey is going to be coaching the Warriors next year, and uh, it's all kind of falling into place now. But look, you mentioned... <laughs> These are some big, big <laughs> predictions. You Go bold. <laughs> you mentioned Cleveland, and we've gone far too long without talking about what LeBron did to Boston in Game 7. I'll, I'll start here with Brock, who says... LeBron played all 48 minutes in Game 7, all 82 games this year, and he is the most consistent force in the basketball universe. Where do you rank this LeBron season? And I will start by saying this. I think that this has been a really fascinating LeBron season, but it has also become increasingly frustrating to watch him over the last couple months with Twitter framing everything. And I've, I've just seen the conversation get distorted into this kind of guilt tripping zone 
where anyone who questioned LeBron or has been at all skeptical at any point now has to repent and recognize that he's the greatest player of all time. And like, I don't know. I just, it, the whole thing kind of bums me out. What, what do you think? I mean, I don't consider this his most impressive accomplishment. I mean, obviously the degree of difficulty here is pretty strong given where his cast of teammates was by the end of these series. But these teams that he beat were not that good, Andrew. I hate to you know break it to everyone. Right. And like Toronto was a really good team. If they had played to their capabilities, I would have been really impressed. But they did it. They completely collapsed upon themselves. If Boston had been at full strength and he outlasted that team in seven games, I would have been really impressed. I'm still very impressed. There's no doubt about it. But LeBron 2016 to me is always going to be his crowning achievement. I don't think uh, I mean, I guess if he won the title this year, that would surpass it. But I don't see that happening. You know what? To me, also, I don't. I don't like to get into this thing where we're giving extra credit for a degree of difficulty too. Like sometimes, if you're so good and you make it look easy, uh, do you deserve credit for that too? And so when I'm looking at 2012, 2013, LeBron, uh, I'm really, really, really impressed by that version of LeBron too. So. Uh, I guess from a narrative standpoint, is it one of the best stories that LeBron's ever crafted? Sure. Uh, but in terms of like what he's actually you know doing and who he's doing it against, uh, I don't think he would be in the finals if we had a 1-16 to playoff format. I think he would have been knocked out by either uh, Houston or Golden State and maybe some of the other Western Conference teams. Mm-hmm. Um, and I think from that standpoint, like, it's a little bit warped, you know, like he's able to dominate against Terry Rozier because guess what? When game seven comes in the Eastern conference finals, Terry Rozier has never done it before. He's not ready for that moment. Uh, he's able to, you know, overcome, you know, the miraculous first round series victory <laughs> as some people are, are putting, you know, Victor Oladipo and DeMontis Sabonis. I mean, come on, you know, I, I think we need to have some level of perspective. LeBron's been sensational. He answered every single question for his team uh, he masterfully played that you know seven game series by uh, kind of you know saving his bullets in game five, winning strong in game six, and then just outlasting everybody in game seven. Full credit for all of that. Yep. But I don't think that this goes down as his best achievement or even really his second best. Yeah, I'm glad you mentioned the achievement aspect of it because we got a number of emails. I've got one here from Greg asking about the people saying this is LeBron's greatest achievement. And to me, it's just insane to even bring that into the conversation when the 2016 finals were like two years ago, because that was probably the most incredible thing I've ever seen in the playoffs. Um, and like he, the, LeBron's done 15 things that are just as incredible as everything we just watched against Boston and the Celtics, you know, they were really good and they were well positioned to make it tough on him. But the, that Celtics team, my Celtics did not deserve to win that game. Like that one sequence at the end after the Marcus smart offensive board, where it felt like every player on the floor took turns bricking threes for 30 seconds. Like that was kind of the whole problem for Boston at the end. There is it just like, I looked up and I was watching with other people and I remember telling them like the Celtics just don't have good players right now. (laughs) And that's an issue. And the, and the Cavs had LeBron and that was all that mattered. Um, Jason Tatum wasn't Boston. I mean, wasn't Boston the cutest 
of all the cute stories we've ever seen. It, I mean, I, I'm, it was look, sort of like peak cute story. Hold on. Right? I'm not going to let you take it there. all the way to game seven, <laughs> and they pushed LeBron. They made him dig deep, but they were the ultimate cute story. They never had a shot to win the title this year. No. Um, look, And they, they went were... to the very borderline of, of their possible accomplishments. They surprised us at multiple occasions. They had a fan base that loved them to death. I saw so many <laughs> tweets from different people saying, this was my favorite Celtics team ever to root for. I mean, you you turned into Benedict Arnold forsaking your Washington Wizards to jump on the bandwagon just in time for them to finish the series, I think, one and three after you did so. Um, yes. But, I mean, this was the ultimate cute story, I am proud to have jinxed the Boston Celtics over the past 10 days. Um, I love it. I, I'm not going to – like. here's the thing with the Celtics, though. If you put Kyrie on that team – even just for the fourth quarter of Game 7, they probably win that game. And so they are so well-positioned to like terrorize teams with wings and depth and then close with Kyrie. Like The formula is pretty clear, and I'm, I mean, I'm convinced it's going to be successful going forward, especially when you slide in Hayward to like Marcus Morris playing 30 minutes a game. Like They're going to be a real pain in the ass for the next four or five years. Um well, that just makes this team even cuter, doesn't it? I mean, it's like... <laughs> this ragtag bunch. Yeah. Yeah. Just imagine once they have the reinforcements, Andrew. They're coming back. It was also very funny. After the game, Marcus Smart came out and was like, I think I'm worth more than 12 to $14 million a year. <laughs> like, let's not get carried away, Marcus. You've been awesome for a couple weeks on a team that had absolutely no alternatives. But uh, we'll see where that goes. The LeBron thing... Can I just explain what I find frustrating about all this? Please. Okay. So I just feel like his season is amazing for so many reasons that people aren't totally acknowledging. Like, I think what's incredible about LeBron in general is how difficult his personality can make things. And and it's not even his personality, just like the energy that follows him wherever he goes including media scrutiny and stuff behind the scenes and and the challenges that he creates and his presence creates sometimes it's passive sometimes it's active but and then he's so often great enough to win anyway and like I think that had always been true in subtle ways and there had always been a ton of exhausting drama behind the scenes but this was the season that the subtext kind of became text and like Kyrie legitimately demanded a trade and was like, get me away from this team. And LeBron stopped trying for a month and they then got rid of half the roster. They came into the playoffs with a team that had never really played together before. And it's insane that LeBron can create all these obstacles and still be amazing enough to carry everyone and dominate and like, break Boston's heart the way he did in game seven. That's the story. That's what should be incredible to everyone. But instead of using that context to appreciate like exactly what makes this so incredible, it just becomes like everybody needs to appreciate LeBron James. He's better than MJ. He's the one true goat who silenced the haters. And I'm just kind of over that side of the conversation. 
Yeah, I mean, imagine like a, a sandcastle making competition, right? Like this year's Cavaliers, I mean, LeBron picked like a super rocky beach, right? And then he's got tidal waves coming through. And like by the end of it, he's like pieced together this like Jenga style like just misfit contraption <laughs> sandcastle that's like barely standing. And, you know, actually during his post-game press conference the other night, he was sitting on the floor to really let everyone know how uh, how hard he had worked. And yeah. surely he did work hard, but that kind of, uh, you know, He lays it, it. on thick. So <laughs> like he, he does. And I mean, so that you have that little like ramshackle sandcastle. And then over here, you know, in previous years, you've got them smoking the thunder off the court in the heat in 2012. Uh, you know, that's just a pretty, you know, it's like a fair weather, you know, nice beach, no issues, just, you know, nice skyscraper sandcastle. Right. And naturally, human inclination is to say like, wow, look at all these things LeBron did. But he didn't have to choose that rocky beach, Andrew. Like, you know, he <laughs> exactly. He could have he scoped out uh, some other beachfront property. And, you know, frankly, that's one reason why, uh, and to pivot back quickly here for Kevin Durant, like I understand why people think, hey, you took the shortcut, you took the easy way out, bandwagoning to go to Golden State. But like building a dynasty, like a sandcastle that's going to last for years Mm -hmm. is a lot harder than doing anything one time, right? And we're seeing exactly how difficult it is for them to build this dynasty this year. I mean, they're barely hanging on uh, in a game seven to, to be able to get that done. And, you know, going forward, I think, you know, into going into next season, I'm not sure we're going to have the same storyline of like, oh, it's the Warriors and everybody else. I think that one's going to get retired here um, because they face so much adversity in this series. I think it's going to be viewed as a more level playing field, even if they bring everybody back. And um, that's why I don't think what they're trying to do in Golden State is the easy way out, because I think that's if they're fair. trying to accomplish something bigger than just one year. Uh, and that's not an easy, uh, you know, challenge to tackle by any stretch yeah and to bring it back to lebron i think what we're saying is that lebron has to win on his terms and oftentimes that can make the whole thing so much more complicated and difficult and yet he's so incredible i mean he's the second best player of all time maybe we'll end up being the best player of all time but he's so good that he can do it anyways uh but i think this is the season where that whole aspect of the LeBron experience became clearest and and it's weird to me that like instead of discussing that we're just talking about him as as, uh, honestly forget it it just means I've been reading too many tweets being like LeBron James is better than Jordan and anyone who doesn't believe that like doesn't know basketball or or watches basketball for the wrong reasons or whatever I've I've been reading too much of like that yeah well I mean I I mentioned earlier about Golden State taking the wrong lessons from escaping Houston. I'm worried that LeBron might take the wrong lessons from surviving this Eastern Conference (laughs) because what LeBron should be doing here is saying, looking in the mirror and saying, hey, year 16 coming up next year, I need to find a more functional environment with more supportive teammates, with you know, ownership and management that are completely empowered to make good basketball decisions, who can build a team around me and kind of create this culture where I'm going to thrive. Um, but instead, I'm worried that he's going to be reading all these articles about how, hey, like he he might not win the title, but this counts just as much as a title because of what he was <laughs> totally. able to like pull everybody through and buy into that. And he shouldn't. Well, he's because I don't think LeBron's winning days here should be over. I think that there's still plenty of great, excellent basketball left in his career. But what you're saying, 
He has to do it on his own terms. It's time to start adjusting that philosophy. It's time to, you know, sort of take accountability for some of the things that led up to this season being so shaky. Yeah. Um, and, you know, learning from it and, you know, adjusting his approach, whether it's in free agency or team building or everything else, to put himself into a, a better position to win titles consistently over the next five years. Yeah. He's kind of post criticism right now. And it's a little strange to watch because I love LeBron, but I love him in part because he's like a bizarre person who exhausts everyone around him. Um, but, uh, and then, I mean, what? <laughs> That one sequence where he dunked with Marcus Morris hanging off him and then spent like 15 seconds just walking around the Boston Garden barking at the fans was fucking awesome as well. So two more questions at the end here, both of which are kind of uh, doom and gloom. But Jason says, you guys, particularly Mr. Sharp, have done a lot of talking about how the Warriors ruined the league when they got Durant because it made everything so predictable, took away some of the competitiveness, etc. I never said that. I, can you say the same thing about LeBron's final streak in the East, but possibly in possibly to an even greater degree? Um, I'll start. First of all, I never say that the Durant Warriors ruined the league. I think they just put a ceiling on how interesting the playoffs can get. But as far as LeBron and the East, I personally blame the rest of the East for the lack of competitiveness. Like LeBron is unbelievable, and I definitely don't have a problem with him punishing all these fake-ass contenders year after year. What do you think? Yeah, I mean... It's tricky because he's done it in three different situations, right? Like he had a lot of success in Cleveland, then he went to Miami, then he came back. So there was opportunities if other teams like had a master plan to kind of like put it together and, and really take their best shot. And like the vision that we saw, for example, from Daryl Morey building around hard and realizing it's going to be a multi-year process, but being, you know, smart, deliberate, you know, pulling out all the punches and recruiting different players and so on and so forth. Have we seen any master plans in the Eastern Conference uh, that haven't involved LeBron and Pat Riley? You know, I mean, there there really has been nothing along those lines. And that's why these teams have sort of come and gone in these two or three year waves, whether it's Indiana uh, a few years ago, whether it's Toronto. I mean, uh, when I look at the GMs that I respect in the NBA, they're all basically the all of yeah. them in the Western <laughs> Conference. And the only team who we can throw into this mix now is Boston. And I think ultimately they're going to be the team that, that ends this streak, right? Well, I mean, and it's it's one reason that it's a huge bummer that, number one, Kyrie wasn't healthy this spring, and number two, LeBron could be in the West this time next year. So we may ne- never get to see it, and his legacy may just be like a decade-long reign of terror in the East, and then he bounced and started a different chapter of his career, which would be fine. I But like... To answer Jason's question, like I would not have wanted to see the Roy Hibbert, George Hill Pacers teams in the finals. And like there just haven't been any alternatives that were more compelling. This Celtics team, I will say, and like I said it on the podcast, halfway through this Boston series, it became clear to me that I don't really need another finals trip from LeBron and, and this iteration of his career. Like I here's what I'd say. I don't think the Warriors ruined the NBA. I don't think LeBron's dominance has ruined the NBA. If there's anything that ruined this season, it was the Kyrie Irving injury. Because if yeah. he's still like imagine and 
also just frankly his breakup with LeBron too. I mean, let's throw that in there too because if we have a healthy Le- uh, LeBron and Kyrie going against the Warriors after all this drama uh, in the Western Conference, uh, I think the entire Warriors Cavaliers four would be viewed in a different light because I think we're getting a lot of fatigue. Uh, from people who are, you know, we've seen it three times already. Obviously, Golden State went in one direction last summer, and Cleveland went a completely different direction. The gap has widened between those two teams. Uh, LeBron doesn't have a lot of help. If Kyrie's still in Cleveland, I think the excitement factor for this series, even though it would have been a fourth straight time, would have been really, really high again because the previous versions have been so entertaining and so rich in talent. And that's to me, that's the shame of you know Warriors Cavs four. That's you really know, interesting. It, it's lacking, it's lacking Kyrie. When, to me. when you that brought up Kyrie, shame. I thought you meant Kyrie on the Celtics because I think Kyrie leading the Celtics into the finals, and I'm not entirely convinced we wouldn't have gotten a, a Gordon Hayward appearance at some point if they had actually made it that far. It just that would have been really cool with with LeBron and Cleveland. I'm just not sure we're gonna ever learn anything new at this point. Like I already know. LeBron is is this generation's Jordan. I appreciate how incredible he is, but it, it just he's probably isn't enough to make this Golden State series interesting. And I I was ready for a new story is what I realized halfway through that Celtics series. And the Celtics would have been kind of a fun underdog to root for. Um, and next year, I guess I don't know, but that's a good segue into the final segment of the podcast. We had this on the calendar as a finals preview. Neither of us have really talked about the finals at all in this podcast, but I will pose a question to you from Michael, who asks, or who says, I don't envy the the job that NBA journalists have ahead of them for the next couple of days, trying to hype up what is probably the most one-sided finals matchup since 2007. The Cavs are significantly less talented and cohesive than they were this time last year when they were outclassed at every turn by the Warriors. Is there any reason to honestly expect an interesting series, or should we all just start focusing on the draft already? What do you think? Well, I think, uh, first of all, this guy's going to watch the finals. LeBron's in the finals. (laughs) You're going to watch. Now, whether or not that makes you as excited as you've possibly been, I understand that, but... He's going to be in the finals, and the Warriors are going to be in the finals. You've got the three best players in the world on the court. There were some remarkable moments in last year's finals, even though that wound up being a very, very one-sided series. Um, I think I'm more excited to see Cleveland than Boston make the finals because um, LeBron, you know, he's playing with history here. Like if Boston's in there and it's a five-game Golden State win, I think it's sort of viewed as okay this was like the Celtics were were there one year too early before they were healthy right I think no matter what every time LeBron's in there uh, for the finals it just becomes something that we're going to remember 20 years from now I can remember every single finals he's been in here you know during this current run and I don't expect that to stop this season Uh, I don't know if you know this he's played in 41 consecutive finals games that's just absolutely obscene um, so even if they get swept, you know, that's going to probably be up to 45. I mean, that's just ridiculous. So um, real quick on that, on that front, you know, when players retire, like when Kobe retired, we put out as sports illustrated, put out a special commemorative issue with Kobe on, on the cover. And it was just, the entire thing was about him. Yeah. I wrote a bunch. I know it. you, you were all over that. 
I think whatever we do that with LeBron, there should just be like a 20-page section of random statistical shit that he has, like, that he has accomplished over the course of his career that is absolutely mind-boggling. Because literally, like, after every LeBron performance, there are four or five stats that jump out where you're just like, how is this even possible? And, and by the end of his career we will be able to fill 15 or 20 pages of a magazine with it. I mean, we're going to need a book. <laughs> it really I mean, when it, this guy It's going to be the longest this guy's SI done, issue of the last yeah, like 25 this, years. When this guy's done, we're going to need a 400 page book. And like, <laughs> you can have the, you can have a reference table in the back with all the records he's broken and all that stuff too. But I mean, this guy's given us so much material and that's why I'm excited. I mean, I haven't seen LeBron play in person since March and the thought of, you know, watching Terry Rozier and Aaron Baines, you know, try to keep pace <laughs> with Golden State. I'm sorry. I'm a lot more excited to be able to see LeBron play at least four more times. There's no no doubt about it. I also think we've got a little bit of intrigue here on the Golden State side. Iguodala's health is is definitely up in the air. He plays a huge role in defending LeBron. Uh, so that is a wrinkle to watch. Now that that may not prevent Cleveland from getting blown out by thirty points in Game One, think, but it's something to to track. Let me ask for you sure. something. Do you think that Adam Silver makes like a Godfather call to Joe Lacob and says, "Look, you're going to win this title. <laughs> we everyone knows that. Keep Iguodala on the sidelines. Let's just mix it up a little bit and give the people what they want." No, I don't think so. That's a <laughs> that's a good one. I uh, hadn't thought of that possibility. Yeah, league intervention. Uh, but I think that's uh, an issue. And also the Steph-KD tension or non-tension or whatever is absolutely something to track, right? Yeah. And if they wind up you know, blowing Cleveland off the court like we expect, it's not going to be a big deal. If they get into some close games, uh, we already know there's stuff bubbling there. So let's see how it bubbles over. Uh, even more. I think those are the reasons why I'm watching, uh, you know, this final series. And I'm also watching to see who wins finals MVP, by the way, Andrew, because we've got, you know, three awesome candidates. I could completely see a scenario where LeBron wins finals MVP in defeat because the media has become so far behind him yep. in the one man show. Uh, so that, that would be a very unique piece of, uh, you know, NBA history. And then can Steph finally get his first finals MVP? I think that's a pretty interesting story as well. And if KD wins it again, what does that do to the chemistry dynamic that we've spent the last 45 minutes talking about? Uh, I think, uh, you know, I, I'm reaching, uh, to be honest. <laughs> I'm reaching. Thank you. But Andrew, there are things I'm looking for well, in this series. let me ask you, though. You really think there are only three finals MVP candidates? You're either setting me up to really praise Clay Thompson for what was a remarkable game six, or I really hope you're not trying to throw Come Rodney on, man. The, the Rodney Hood finals game is a distinct possibility right now. Ty Lue's got the Warriors exactly where he wants them. Game five, when the, the series is hanging in the balance because Iguodala is not going to see the court after Adam Silver makes a call, Rodney Hood comes off the bench drops like 27 to 32 on the Warriors, and then LeBron triumphs in seven. That is that is what I'm envisioning for the next two weeks. Well, you know how we were talking about the LeBron book of all his records that we're going to have to have. It's time to start the Rodney Hood book because I don't know if you saw <laughs> More like a leaf game <laughs> seven. Yeah, it might be, frankly, one, one line, but... 
Game 7 on the road, elimination game, Eastern Conference Finals. Rodney Hood and LeBron James combined for 35 points, 15 rebounds, 9 assists (laughs) in 48 minutes. That is history, and we will never, ever forget. But at least they let him touch the trophy. (laughs) Look, man, redemption is coming. That's all I'm saying. Everyone, keep your eyes open. And uh, look, Ben, next time we talk, you and I will both be in the Bay. Should be a great weekend out there. And... uh, for now, you and I both have to write, and then you have to get on a flight tomorrow, so we should cut it short. I will talk to you soon. Great conference finals, and uh, we will reconvene after a 30-point Warriors win later in the week. Sounds good. Real quick, prediction. Who's winning? How many games? Um, At this point, it does kind of feel like it's a foregone conclusion, so I am probably rooting for a Warriors sweep. But um, it's either Warriors in four or five. Not exactly going out on a limb there. Yeah, I'm with you. I really want to pick Warriors in four because I think it's the right logical uh, pick. But I I can't do it. I'm going to go Warriors in five. But Andrew, we got so many great emails, like you mentioned, that came in right after the game. Everyone was angling to get onto this podcast. I could tell. Guys, keep the emails coming. Openfloormail at gmail.com openfloormail at gmail.com and on top of that Andrew they can go to the Apple Podcast app they can search open floor that's two words open floor very easy to spell find our page scroll down it will say rate and review tap five stars we are your podcast postmates we are your Ubers it's just that easy to rate us it helps us spread the word Andrew until later this week I'll talk All to right, you All right, take it easy man another great edition of open floor is in the books Did you know Locked On has a daily podcast for all 30 NBA teams? If you're a Lakers fan, search Locked On Lakers. A Celtics fan, search Locked On Celtics. Warriors fans, search Locked On Warriors. Yes, all 30 NBA teams have a daily bite-sized podcast on the Locked On Podcast Network. Search on Apple Podcasts or Google Podcasts for Locked On, your favorite team. Or tell your smart speaker to play podcasts, Locked On, your favorite team. It's the Locked On Podcast Network, your team every day.